It's on the topic of, of slavery. And, and slavery is uh, something that, that many here uh, in America, we can tend to think that it was abolished uh, with the 13th Amendment. Uh, and we can praise God that it, that it was uh, abolished and it is now illegal uh, in the United States. But uh, the, while the legal practice uh, has ended, there is still illegal slavery taking place not only uh, in the U.S., but uh, everywhere uh, around the world. It's, uh, it's estimated uh, by the website antislavery.org uh, that there are 40 million people worldwide who are living in slavery. And uh, among those uh, would be 10 million children, so one in, one in four. 24.9 million people in forced labor working in such industries as manufacturing, construction, agriculture, mining, or domestic work. 15.4 million people uh, in forced marriage. And younger women are often forced to marry older men. And 4.8 million people in forced sexual exploitation. Victims are, uh, on an average, held against their will for almost two years before they can escape regarding that sexual exploitation. Slavery is not something of the past. It is very much uh, alive in the present as well. It is a very real danger, uh, both here in the U.S. and around the world. And so when we come to passages like what we come to today in Colossians 3, uh, verses uh, 22 and, and following... Uh, we can sometimes just immediately skip over and say, well, you know, slavery is outlawed here in our country. So, so, you know, that doesn't apply to me, so let me figure out some other application for that. And yes, it's going to have some implications for us uh, in the workplace, but we, we can't lose sight of uh, what the original author, Paul, was intending to communicate to his original audience, uh, the Colossians, uh, and specifically the slaves in the Colossian church. And we first and foremost need to understand what he is calling them to and the, the weight of the commands that he's going to give them. Uh, because uh, what, the, what the Bible is going to say repeatedly, as we saw in, in 1 Peter, uh, as Peter's writing to, to people who are in the midst of persecution, he says, hey, submit to every authority. Submit to your master. And uh, follow whose example? Christ. Because he submitted to unjust uh, authorities because it was the will of of his father. And as we as we seek to try and understand what this would have meant to to the first century church in that little town of, of Colossae, it's helpful to kind of have a little bit of background on slavery in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was an economy that was completely dependent upon slavery, much like uh, the southern U.S. prior to the Civil War. Uh, it was an economy driven by slaves. It's estimated that about one-third of the population of the city of Rome were slaves, uh, and up to one-half of the entire population in the Roman Empire, maybe 60 million people, were slaves during that time. And much of the thinking about slavery at that time was built upon the ethics of the Greek philosopher Aristotle. He taught that certain people were, uh, were built for slavery, that, that slaves were mere property, and that slaves had no rights or privileges. And treatment of slaves in the Roman world varied uh, greatly depending upon the master. Uh, so who your master was, what his character was like, what type of mood he was in, dependent upon how you were going to be uh, treated as a slave. Uh, and during the time of the Roman Empire, there would be seven ways that you could become a slave. Uh, the, the most common was, was military conquest. 
Uh, if your homeland was conquered by the Romans, you were either killed or probably taken as a slave. Uh, and because that was the, the predominant way that slaves uh, came about, uh, slaves were in every walk of life. You had doctors, teachers, um, you know, blacksmiths. Every, every type of profession could be a slave because if you had a skill that somebody else might want, they just said, okay, now, now I own you. Come be a part of my household. I'll take care of you, but you're going to work uh, for me. Uh, at one point, Julius Caesar uh, sold an entire population of a conquered region in Gaul, and no fewer than 53,000 people went to slave dealers on the spot. Can you imagine that? 50,000 people. So military conquest was the most common way of becoming a slave. Secondly, uh, condemned criminals. Uh, you know, they would go to the mines or, or row on a galley ship. Have you guys seen Ben-Hur? Uh, get our, our understanding of what that would be like uh, by looking to, to that movie. That's, that's what happened with cr- criminals, and it was usually for the rest of their lives. There was no pr- parole board for them to appeal to. Hey, can I, get, can I be done with this rowing thing now? No, it was, uh, it was for life. A third and, and probably the most heinous way of becoming a, a slave in Rome was kidnapping or, or pirating, capturing others and carrying them off to be sold as slaves. And that would refer to that as the slave trade, which in and of itself is separate and distinct from slavery. It's a smaller portion. We'll, we'll talk about that. But uh, A fourth way would be self-imposed slavery in order to pay off a debt or to, to come under somebody else's uh, provision and protection. People sometimes sold themselves as slaves. Uh, another way would be abandonment. Uh, if parents couldn't afford a, a child, uh, they would... They would expose it. They would just leave it out in the open, and sometimes those children would be uh, taken and cared for, and sometimes they would be uh, taken as sold as slaves or kept as slaves. So children, think about that when you're questioning if your parents really love you, uh, as we talked about last week. But, uh, yeah, abandonment. Uh, and then uh, at other times, uh, children, older children were sold into slavery by parents. Uh, of, hey, let me uh, sell you my child to pay off this debt. I can't pay it off, but... Uh, let me give you my, my son or daughter. Uh, and then the, the seventh way that you could become a slave would be uh, born into slavery. Uh, if, you, if your mother was a slave, and guess what you are as soon as you're born? You're a slave. You belong to uh, the, the owner, the, the master of whoever your, your mother was. And while the Bible condemns some of these activities, slavery in and of itself is not openly condemned in the Bible. Now, and I'll, I'll qualify that and I'll explain that, but slavery does not equal slave trading. Uh, and that's what we'll, we'll understand. The concept of slavery is not inherently evil. And how do, I, how do I know that? Well, because the Apostle Paul repeatedly uses the imagery of a, a slave-master relationship to describe his own relationship with Christ. Listen to, in, he begins each of these New Testament epistles saying, identifying himself as a, as a, serv, a servant or a bondservant or a slave of Christ. Romans 1, uh, Galatians 1.10, Philippians 1, Titus 1. Uh, other apostles also identify themselves as slaves. James, Peter, Jude, and John in the book of Revelation. Uh, they, they look to this master and slave relationship and say, hey, that's a good description of what I am to Christ. I am wholeheartedly serving him. And then you look to the Gospels and, and the slave and master relationship uh, that, that Jesus Christ himself repeatedly used. Last month in January, we, we read through uh, the Gospel of Matthew uh, as a church in our, in our small groups. And, and how often, think of how often Jesus' parables had to do with 
the ways that a slave would interact with his master or a master with his slave. Those are intended to, to teach us and show us how we interact with our heavenly master, the Lord Jesus Christ. So slavery is not in and of itself inherently evil. Uh, and uh, there are both lawful and unlawful aspects seen in the Old Testament. Turn with me to, to the book of Deuteronomy. thought it might be helpful to turn there. We're reading through Deuteronomy this month uh, in our growth groups. Turn to, to Deuteronomy 15. So we'll, well, we'll come to that in a second. But uh, of those seven ways that you can become a slave in, in the Roman Empire, some of those are also seen in the Old Testament, uh, in the law. And uh, acquiring slaves through military conquest was, was something that we see in the Old Testament. Uh, and it wasn't, uh, you know, God isn't saying, hey, Israel, when you run low on slaves, just go and do some conquest. But uh, God at times would use Israel uh, as an instrument in his hand to bring judgment upon other nations uh, and that they would go and, and conquer uh, and sometimes they would take uh, and capture those people and, and use them uh, as, as servants, as slaves. And uh, also when Israel disobeyed the Lord, uh, when Israel continued in their rebellion against God, God would send Assyria or the Babylonians to take Israel away into captivity, into slavery. So we see that military conquest was one way that slaves were acquired in the Old Testament. That second manner uh, of condemned criminals. Well, in the Old Testament, condemned criminals were, we see that they were they're beaten, but they were never taken away as slaves. So that's, that's a one big difference. Uh, if you were a condemned criminal, you were punished for your crimes, but never taken away into slavery. We see that in Deuteronomy 25, verses 1 to 3. And then in Deuteronomy 15, uh, if you're there, look, at, look with me um, in verse 12. Uh, Deuteronomy 15, verse 12. We're going to see the idea of, of self-imposed slavery. Uh, and what that looked like in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 15, beginning in verse 12, says, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, and if you notice there's a little note there that says, or sells himself to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. So slavery in, in Israel was designed to be for for a limited amount of time. Hey, if I'm in debt, there was, no, there was no bankruptcy, but this is what you would do. Hey, I have no more money to pay off my debt, so let me go and be a slave or servant to somebody uh, for six years, and in the seventh year, I will go free. Verse 13, and when, you, and when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. So this upholds the inherent dignity of that slave. I say, hey, don't, don't send him off uh, so that he's paid off his debts and then he still has no, he's still in the exact same position if he has no way to provide for himself. But send him out uh, the way that the Lord has blessed you. Give him according, uh, accordingly uh, and send him out with things in his hands so that he's able to provide for himself and for his family. So uh, that's, again, inherently different from what we see in in the Roman world of, hey, you can, you can be free and then you are sent uh, with payment for uh, your service, so to speak. Verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. It'll be interesting uh, as we read through Deuteronomy this month, just make a mental note of how often that is repeated, where, where the Lord says, hey, you were a slave in Egypt. You were a sojourner, so when you, have somebody, when you have a foreigner coming to live among you, Israel, you know what that feels like, so treat them well. Love your neighbor according to how you, you understand their position, so treat them well. And then he also reminds them, hey, you used to be a slave. You remember what that is like. 
and don't treat them in the same way that you were treated in Egypt. Treat them fundamentally different. That's what he's calling them to here. In verse 16, but if, but if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you, then you shall take an all and put it through his ear into the door and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you. For at half the cost of a hired worker, he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. So the slave could choose to say, hey, you know what? My master's taking really good care of me. I want to continue to serve him. I want my family to be a part of his family. Uh, and I want that to continue. And, and that slave could, uh, you know, it sounds really painful. I guess one way to pierce an ear, you take an awl, as kind of a screwdriver with just a, a sharp edge, uh, and, and put it through your ear, showing that, hey, you, you've been, uh, you are a slave belonging to, to someone else. And that, uh, in that description, it's not intended to be something that, that's evil or wicked. That's a, that's a glorious thing for, for a slave to come under a master and say, I enjoy working and serving this individual. I want to continue in that relationship. Uh, and to do that uh, to, the, to the glory and blessing uh, of both parties. Uh, similarly, we see uh, in, in the Old Testament passage in Exodus 21 that, that if uh, a man were to, to go out, he says, hey, you know what, I want to depart from my master. Sometimes slaves would be married. Uh, they would be married to another slave in that household, and sometimes they would have staggering, uh, I want to call it a sentence, but time frames of when they are serving. Uh, and the, the man could go out, but he's saying if, uh, if he goes out, he goes away on his own, and his wife, uh, who's still, you know, being, uh, spending her time being uh, a servant, would remain in that house, and the children that she bore would still remain in that house as slaves. So we see also in Israel the concept of if, if your mother was a slave, you were also born a slave, but also in Israel slavery had a time frame. So that's important to keep in mind. Uh, the, the most heinous of those ways of becoming a slave, of, of kidnapping and pirating. Turn over to Deuteronomy 7, and I want you, uh, I want you to, to, see, to see that. Because it's so important, the, the idea of the slave trade is openly and emphatically condemned in both the New and the Old Testament. And we'll look at the New Testament passage in a second. But look, look at this, Deuteronomy 24, verse 7. It says, If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that, sheaf, that, wait, that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. See, what was the penalty of, of slave trading, of kidnapping, of pirating in the Old Testament? Death. And, and notice that last little description that the Lord gives. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This is, he, God doesn't mince words here. He says, hey, there's some aspects of slavery that, that we can deal with and that, that can be acceptable, but, but stealing people and forcing them into slavery? No way. Turn over to, to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1. Uh, we're going to see a, a similar uh, and emphatic denunciation in, in the New Testament here with Paul. 1 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 8, the apostle writes, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, 
the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and in that little word, enslavers. And if you have the ESV that has a note there, uh, it says those who take someone captive in order to sell them into slavery. Again, the, the slave trade is inherently wicked and evil, uh, and it is condemned both in the Old and New Testaments. Uh, but not every aspect of slavery is. That, especially and emphatically. Uh, the, the fifth way that uh, people could become slaves is also seen in, in the Old Testament of sold by parents. Of Exodus 21, uh, you see that daughters were allowed to be sold by, uh, by their parents uh, into slavery, but that came with certain rights and responsibilities. And she was, in essence, becoming a wife to somebody. And uh, you can see that, we won't turn there now, but Exodus 21, verses 7 through 11. Uh, and uh, over and over again, we, we see that in, in the Bible, slavery exists, but uh, it can be a picture of a, of a more beautiful truth, uh, which we'll talk about later. Uh, but in slavery in the Old and New Testament uh, never attacks or denounces uh, the inherent value of a slave. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, if you can look at uh, Exodus 26, uh, I have it here, you can listen. Uh, verses 20, 21, verses 26 and 27 say this, that when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go, free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, uh, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. The idea of these, they are still people, they still have value. Uh, you still need to make restitution to them if you sin against them. Now, that, that's what we see in slavery in the Old Testament. Uh, and so uh, nowhere uh, in the Bible does it say that, that slavery and, and uh, just free license to, to hit or beat slaves or, or kidnap people, uh, all of the worst of slavery that many people will try and attribute to the Bible is, uh, is not true. Uh, and, and there's much more. I have many of the verses. If you want uh, to spend some time looking them up, I can send them to you. But uh, over and over again, you'll, you'll see that slavery, when it's, when it's mentioned in the Bible, is intended to be something that is a benefit uh, to both parties, and slave trading is openly condemned. Uh, and if we turn back to, to Colossians, uh, and we look at chapter 3, so with, with all of those different ways of becoming a slave, uh, it seems like the Apostle Paul would, would give us some, some qualifications of, hey, if you were kidnapped and taken from your home, just run away. Just rebel against your, your master. Like you were, you were taken in sin, and you should just get a, a get out of slavery free card. Uh, but if you were, you know, if you had to sell yourself in, in, into slavery as a, to pay off a debt, then you need to obey. Uh, what's interesting, God, Paul doesn't give like a case by case scenario of like, okay, so if you're this kind of slave, do this and this. He he lumps all slaves together, and he says, here's what you are called. To do. Look, look with me, Colossians 3, beginning in verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And uh, as, we, as we come to 
to these verses, and it's closing out this, uh, this household code that we've been looking at. And uh, this is the third pair of relationships that, that Paul has addressed. He began with, with husbands and wives, and then he moved to, uh, to fa- children and fathers, and then he is now moving to uh, slaves and masters. Because in, in, in the first century Roman Empire, this was a household issue. Uh, this was a, a family issue because your slaves lived with you. So he's going to give instructions uh, regarding what they, how they are to conduct themselves uh, in this new Christian household that no longer has uh, the, the husband, father, and slave master as the Lord. But who's the new Lord of the Christian household? It's Christ. So now they're submitting everybody to the lordship of Christ in all of these relationships. Uh, and what's especially interesting here, uh, in, in previous weeks, how much... How many verses did each uh, group that Paul was addressing get? How many verses did, did wives get? Uh, husbands, fathers, children. How many? One. They each got one verse. And masters at the end are going to get only one verse. But slaves, how many verses do they get? Four. Uh, there's an emphasis here, just as Paul slows down and gives them additional instructions. And that's, uh, I think the reason he's doing that is because as these men carry this letter to the Colossians, one of them is a runaway slave who's coming back to his master. Uh, and we'll look, about, look at that more when we study uh, Philemon after Colossians. But it's, it's an amazing story uh, that, that we see there. But in these verses, we'll see the, the weight and responsibility that was placed both upon slaves and slave masters. Uh, and while this is going to, again, have contemporary application, we can't just speed over uh, and lose sight of what Paul was really commanding slaves to do. And what is he calling both slaves and masters to do? Well, if, if you have your outline, uh, you, can, you can look with me. Of What we're going to see this morning are four directives, four commands. The first three are directed to, uh, to slaves, and the, the fourth is going to be directed towards uh, masters. Uh, and uh, along with those directives, there's going to be four motivations of, of do this because Jesus is Lord in this way. Uh, the four motivations that we'll see are connected with who Jesus is and what he will do. Uh, and uh, the first uh, exhortation, the first directive that's given uh, is seen in verse 22. Is, uh, Obey your masters because Jesus is the one you fear. Look with me. Verse 22 says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And this is the same order uh, that was given to, uh, to children, to, to, to hear and align yourselves under what you hear. That's what it means to, to obey. Uh, obey your masters. And then it says the parameters in everything. Uh, and uh, this has the same limitations of, you know, except if, if your master says, hey, go kill this guy, you're not supposed to do that. If you, you submit to the Lord first and foremost, and then uh, accordingly to your master as his instructions line up with God's authority. Uh, and that was the same uh, with the previous relationships as well. Uh, you know, wives submit to your husbands unless he's asking you to sin. Children obey your parents unless they're asking you to sin. God's authority supersedes man's authority. So we see the, the command, then the, the parameters, uh, obey your masters in everything. Uh, but then he qualifies that word masters, earthly masters. Uh, and, and the fact that they are earthly masters implies that there are other types of masters, uh, that there's also a heavenly master uh, that they also submit to. And only uh, in the realm of uh, the earth are, are masters considered uh, or slave owners considered masters. Uh, and uh, this, this points to a more significant master that everybody will submit to. So he gives us the, the command, the parameters, the authority that they're to submit to, and then uh, how they are called to obey. 
And he says, not with eyes, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. He gives uh, two, two or four ways that they are to obey their masters. Two of them are negative, don't do it this way, and two of them are positive, do it this way. Uh, and Paul kind of invents a word here. Uh, he, he comes up with this term of eye service, uh, the idea of don't just obey your masters when they are looking. Uh, but obey them uh, at all times. It's, it's easy for uh, when the authority that, that's governing us, uh, when they're not looking for us to kind of slack off or become lazy. Uh, and, and slaves can, can act and think that way because uh, they're only thinking about serving their earthly master. When his eyes aren't on me, uh, no one's watching, but the Lord always knows. Uh, so don't serve as with eye service or as people pleasers, uh, or only as people pleasers, uh, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So in contrast to those first two descriptions, the, the last two uh, are, are starkly different. Of With sincerity of heart, of obey your masters without hypocrisy. Now, if, if you're doing it with eye service, you're acting one way when they're looking and one way when they're not. Uh, but with sincerity of heart means, that, hey, there's a consistency in your obedience. Uh, and you are that's what Paul is, is calling for, with sincerity of heart. And then the, that last motivation of... Fearing the Lord. Uh, he says, hey, rather than just fearing your master, and how is, it, how is it obvious that slaves would only fear their master? Because when he's looking, they're obeying, and when he's not looking, they're not obeying. So, but when, when you are fearing the Lord, uh, you are acting the same at all ways. Because is there ever a moment in time where the Lord is not aware of what we're doing or what we're thinking? Uh, no, God is, God is always aware. And the fear of the Lord is not a fear of, I want to hide from him because he's really scary. Uh, that's only focusing on the judgment of God, but it's, it's a knowing and understanding not only the judgment of God, but the love of God. And saying, hey, uh, I want to draw near to God because I know and understand who he is uh, and what he is capable of. I know his holiness and I want to draw near to him. And, and we're all tempted to, to cut corners when, when an authority is not looking, right? Children, uh, you, you know when you're doing your chores uh, and when your parents are watching, you're sweeping diligently. But as soon as they stop, you, know, you, you pull out your phone uh, and, and you're, you're distracted looking at other things. Uh, or the, in workouts when I was playing football, uh, my push-ups when my coach was watching were perfect form. Yes, I can do this. Oh, it, it burns so bad, coach. Uh, but then as soon as the coach walks to another part of the room, it's like, okay, uh, I'm taking a break. Oh, he's looking again. Okay. Uh, you know, we, we all understand what Paul is speaking of here. And, and as an employee, you can do the same. Of, of when your boss walks into the room, do, do, does your behavior suddenly change? Are you suddenly switching what you're doing of, you know, your distractedness to, oh, I, need to, I know what I need to be focused upon. Uh, and th- that's eye service. That's what Paul is saying. Hey, don't conduct yourself in that way. Conduct your work in obedience uh, with the attitude and the motivation of I fear the Lord and the Lord always knows how I am working. Uh, the, the motives of our hearts and our inner character are what is being addressed here. Uh, how faithful to our job uh, and how faithful are we when nobody else is watching? That, that's truly what is at stake here. When nobody else is in the room, are you working diligently, fearing the Lord rather than man? And, uh, and our fear of the Lord needs to eclipse our fear of man. That we need to be more concerned with what will the Lord say about my, my work and my work ethic rather than just does my master think I'm working hard? Does my boss think I'm doing a good job? Does the Lord think that you're doing a good job? And, and fear of man is the same thing as people-pleasing. 
We want to please people because we are afraid of their opinions. And in fact, uh, a people pleaser is someone who, who worships man's opinion more than they worship God. Whatever you fear, whatever you're afraid of, that also is what you worship. If you fear man's opinions, it's because you value it too highly. You worship it rather than God. And Paul is calling slaves to obey and serve their masters consistently and faithfully, motivated not by a fear of man, but a reverential fear of the Lord, knowing that Christ is always watching their actions. That's the first directive that's given to slaves. The second is to work wholeheartedly, knowing Jesus will reward you. Look with me uh, at verses 23 and 24. Paul says, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Uh, and so he, he begins this with the hypothetical of, hey, whatever you do, uh, or anything that you do, it's really open-ended. Whatever it is that you could possibly be doing in your work, do it heartily. Work heartily or wholeheartedly. The idea is literally from the soul. Uh, give it your, your everything and whatever it is that you are doing. Uh, and then he says the, the direction of, of uh, as you are working, have your, don't have your eyes on, on your boss, on your master, uh, but have your eyes upon Christ uh, and be doing your work as if you were doing it uh, for your Lord rather than just for some earthly uh, master or human boss that you, uh, who is immediately overseeing you. And then look at why we should do this. Because he issues this command of, hey, do your work heartily as if you're doing it for the Lord, but then why should we do that? Look, look at the end or the beginning of verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And whenever Paul says that, knowing that phrase, uh, he's pointing to something that, that, that is obvious. and It's, it's a truth that we should, we should make note of. Uh, and if you wanted to draw our attention to it, Understand that Christ is the rewarder of believers, that he is the one who will reward us. Uh, and, and think about this. If, if you're a slave in the, in the Colossian church, what, is, what do you have to look forward to in this life? I mean, realistically, not much, right? How much are you paid for your work? You're fed, right? You're housed. Uh, but there really is no, is no payment. But, but what he is saying is, hey, look to Christ as your reward and as your rewarder. Uh, and what's also, what does he say? He says that what will be their reward? He uses a word, starts with an I. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance. What is he talking about? What is that inheritance? What do slaves inherit? Nothing. They get no inheritance from their master. So what is he talking about? Well, look with me back at Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Speaking of our heavenly inheritance, our eternal life, our eternity with Christ, uh, enjoying the blessings of heaven forever. That is what slaves get to look forward to. And, and understand how encouraging that would have been to them. Because they have no inheritance. They have nothing to look forward to in this life. Uh, and when, when Paul said, hey, you are, you, God, God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, slaves might just think, well, that's just for, for slave owners. Maybe that's just for people who are not slaves. But he lumps slaves and slave owners together and says, hey, you guys share in this blessing, this inheritance, 
uh, of God that is extended to believers, you share it. You, you are equal in what you will receive from God. Now, additionally, 1 Peter 3, uh, or I'm sorry, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, Peter says this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And what an encouragement that would have been to slaves. Not only do they have an inheritance, but it can't be touched by an earthly master who's wicked, who's mistreating them. No one can touch the inheritance that is given to slaves or to us as believers. No one can touch it. It can't be uh, destroyed, stolen, or lost. And what a hope that would have been for them to hear that. That, hey, you have an inheritance. You're not going to inherit anything from your earthly master, but you will inherit something from your heavenly master. Which is why Paul says, look forward to that as your reward, not just whatever you might get in this life. And when Paul is saying that, he's really just echoing what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew six nineteen and 21, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Paul is... is directing the slaves to to do what he said in chapter 3, verse 1. And if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hands of God. Look to Christ as your rewarder and do your work here on earth uh, as as if that's true. Don't, Don't look forward to that reward you get from your master. That's good, but that's the extent of it. Look forward to a heavenly and eternal reward, the inheritance that cannot be touched. That is what the second directive that Paul gives to to slaves and what hope that would have given and instilled within them. And then the third directive that he gives to them and the third motivation is he says, serve Christ because he will be your judge. This is at the end of verse 24 and all of verse 25. The end of verse 24 says, You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Now, most modern English versions, uh, they they make uh, that that end of verse 24 into a statement of fact. Uh, They make it into an an indicative of, Hey, you are serving the Lord Christ. That's just a statement. Uh, But in the Greek, it's an imperative. It's a command, and I'm not sure why they all translate it as a statement of fact when, when he's, he's giving a directive. He's saying, you need to do this. He says, hey, serve Christ, or the idea of be a slave to Christ. So he's calling slaves not only to, to look at themselves as, hey, I'm a servant of my earthly master, but I am a slave of Christ. This is who I am called to, to devote myself to. Uh, and the, the Greek word there means to, to act or conduct oneself as someone in total service to another. Hey, I, I, I see myself, I am to devote myself completely to Jesus. And, and the command here gives a greater explanation for how verse 25 begins. Because verse 25 begins with a little word, for. With the idea of because. Uh, and it makes more sense to have a command, and then, hey, do this because of this reason. Uh, hey, serve the Lord Christ because the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. 
serve Christ because he knows what you've done wrong. And there's a promise that, uh, that if you are doing wrong, what's going to happen in the future? You'll be paid back for whatever wrong that you do. And the implication is who is the one doing the payback? Christ. That he is the one who will be your, your judge. And there will be no uh, wrongs that have been committed that won't be righted in Jesus. Now, and there are some who in this world do evil things and, and, and sin, and yet it seems that, that they never suffer any consequences for it. But that day is coming. That, that's the promise here. This will take place in the future. Ravi Zacharias has said this, that the difference between illegitimate and legitimate pleasure is this. For legitimate pleasure, the price is paid before it is enjoyed. And for illegitimate pleasure, the price is paid after it is enjoyed. That's what sin promises, right? Hey, you'll enjoy this for, for a season, but then, then comes the bitterness. Then comes the consequences of your sin. And indeed, those who follow Christ will pay the price now for the reward to be received later. But a sinner's reward is his sin. That's it. Nothing more. When you sin, that's, that's all of the enjoyment that you get for it. Of whatever fleeting pleasure comes. That's, again, to point to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the whole beginning point of, of, of Matthew 6. Uh, Jesus says, hey, don't do your, your deeds of righteousness to be seen by others. The hypocrites, what they love to do, they love to, when they stand praying, where do they like to do it? On the street corner, letting everybody know how holy they are and what they're praying about. Uh, when they give their alms, what do they like to do? They like to announce it. I'm giving this homeless person 20 denarii, or, you know, that, that's what they like to do. They like to announce their holiness. But Jesus says, when you do that, and when you're doing your deeds to be seen by others, that's the extent of your reward. That's all that you'll get. But if we, if we deny ourselves, if we instead say, hey, I'm going to not let my right hand know what my left hand is doing, when, when we work faithfully and diligently, we will get a future reward. That's what Ravi Zacharias is, uh, is basing that on here. And, uh, and we see that this, that this judgment that is coming upon everybody, both slaves and masters, is going to be done without partiality, without any favoritism. Right? And uh, what's taking place right now? The, the Winter Olympics. Right? And the Winter Olympics, more so than the Summer Olympics, have, they have a lot of events that are judged kind of subjectively by judges. Right? Uh, track events, it's like, okay, so how fast did he run? How high did he jump? There's no like, debate on which jump was better. But Winter Olympics, it's like, well, how high did he get on the snowboard jump? Uh, and how many tricks, how many turns, how artistic was it? Or figure skating. Right? Uh, and there's actually been so many scandals on favoritism and partiality among figure skating judges. There was a big scandal uh, in the 2002 Salt Lake City Games uh, where there was collusion among the judges, and, uh, and when that came out, uh, it taints everything. Uh, and, and with human judges, there's really no way of escaping partiality and favoritism. Right? There's going to be that way, but they're trying to do things of, hey, you know, if home country judges won't you know, evaluate people from their country or they'll, they'll do certain things, but everybody... Uh, has a favorite country, the one that you're from, usually. Uh, and sometimes you can have a favorite athlete, and, and you will naturally be biased towards that. But, but how comforting and encouraging is it to know that when we are judged by Christ, there is no partiality, that there is no favoritism with him. 
He's not going to say, well, I like you more and I like you less, so here's what you have to do. And he, no, don't worry about that. No, Jesus doesn't do that. Everybody is on a level playing field. And again, think about this. If you're, uh, let's put ourselves in, in the, the, the sandals of these slaves. What has Jesus just done in saying that there is no partiality? He's, a, he, he's, he's placed slave and slave owner equal in judgment before him. And so this would have been extremely comforting to, to slaves who were being mistreated, knowing that, hey, my master will be judged for the way that he mistreats me. And it also would have been very sobering to those slaves, because knowing that, hey, they will be judged for their wrongdoing. And there's no escaping it. There's no partiality that comes with that. God is holy and righteous, and his judgments are perfect and consistent. And so Paul gives these three exhortations and, and encouragements to slaves. Of, hey, uh, obey your master in everything uh, out of fear of the Lord. Work wholeheartedly because Jesus is going to be the one who rewards you. And serve Christ knowing that he's going to be your judge. Those are the directives to slaves. And then uh, he shifts gears and he's going to, to address masters. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 1, I would present this as a, a horrible chapter break of whoever broke the chapters up because chapter 4, verse 1 is so important. And oftentimes uh, throughout history, this, is, this chapter break, I would say, has been abused. If you're a slave owner, where would you want to end reading to slaves of, the, of Scripture? Want to, you would want to end that reading after verse 25 of chapter 3. You don't want to go to, over to chapter 4, verse 1. So I don't know if that came into play in any part of uh, the chapter break, but we have to understand that, that masters are also addressed, just like husbands and wives are addressed together, and parents and children are addressed together. Slaves and masters are addressed together. And in the, his directive to, to the masters, this is what Paul's going to say. Point number four, that show justice and fairness knowing Jesus is your master. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Uh, and the command here is to, to give, to grant, uh, to show justice and fairness, equality to your slaves. Now, that is what Paul is calling for masters to do. And again, he, he uses that phrase, that two-word phrase, knowing that. Okay, slaves were to, to know that Jesus was the one who was going to reward them. And what are, what are masters to know? That they are also slaves. That even though they are, they are masters and, and, and slave owners here on the earth, that they themselves are still slaves. But where is their, where is their master? In heaven. And it shows some common ground, because both slave owners and slaves have a common master. Uh, it's not that they have different masters, but they are again on level ground before Jesus. And both must bow down to him as Lord and master. One pastor, John Kitchen, says that every earthly master does well to remember he is someone's slave. And we talked about that last week. There, there's no escaping authority uh, in this life. And, and what we can become guilty of is thinking that we are the highest authority, that we answer to no one. There was, was a king in the Old Testament named Nebuchadnezzar who was warned in a dream about thinking that, that he was the highest and most powerful king on the earth. And, and 
Daniel the prophet interpreted his dream and says, hey, God's, God's warning you, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to give glory to God. You need to stop saying all of this is what you did and give glory to, to him. And this is, this is what came about after his dream, after his interpretation, after he was warned. Daniel 4, verses 29 and following, says, At the end of 12 months, he, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. But Nebuchadnezzar eventually repented and was restored after that, that, those seven periods of time were seven years. And listen to what, listen to what he says. He says, At the end of the days... I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? The whole point of that was for Nebuchadnezzar to be humbled and understand that even though he was a king, and even though he was the king of the most powerful nation in the world at that point in time, he still answered to who? God. And Nebuchadnezzar understood that. And, and Paul's warning and instructions here to masters is along those same lines. Of Masters, don't get it into your head that you don't have to answer to anybody. You are accountable to a heavenly Lord, a heavenly master with a capital M, and you're going to have to give account to him. He judges perfectly. He judges impartially. And you will have to stand before him and give an account for the way that you have exercised your authority. That would have been pretty sobering to masters, right? It would have been encouraging for slaves to hear, but slaves also were saying, hey, I have to answer to that same master. And what we've examined this morning has been directed to, to, to slaves and their owners, but, but with slavery being outlawed in our nation, how does, this, how does this apply to us? Does it have any application? Do we just say, hey, you know what, that's it. So I'm glad you guys know that with, with your heads, but it has no impact on your hearts. No. If you guys know us well, you know we, we would never say that. That's not why God gives us the Bible. So we need to figure out, hey, how should this impact our lives? Not just in a, in a head knowledge way, but in a heart knowledge. And in a, as I go from here, I need to do differently understanding. Well, we may not have earthly masters, but these verses inform us how we should interact with those who are in authority over us. Right? It shows us that, that if we may not be slaves, but if slaves were called to obey their masters in everything to work wholeheartedly and serve Christ, 
even when they were called to do this in the most difficult of circumstances. You may have an unbelieving slave master who's beating you every single day. And what is Paul, what are Peter, what are the, what's the New Testament authors calling them to do? Submit. Obey. And in doing so, you will emulate Christ and give glory to God and put the gospel on display. And, and if that's what the New Testament calls slaves to do, how much more when we who are... Was, has anyone been beaten by their boss lately at your occupation? Uh, Tim, if that happens, let me know. Okay. Uh, Tim works for somebody else here. I won't mention names. Uh, but, uh, but no, if, if we have such a better work environment, if we have kind bosses who, who love us and care for us, uh, how much more should we submit to these same instructions? Because these are timeless principles here, right, of how we do work, how we, how we act in our occupations. And notice the motivations are all rooted in, not in first century Rome, but in the eternal character of Christ. Is Christ still our rewarder? Is Christ still our judge? Should we still walk and live in fear of him? Absolutely. So we see, we see all of these principles still apply to us today, but just towards a different person, not a slave master, but those who are in authority over us in our occupation. And then chapter 4, verse 1, we see how we should go about exercising authority. Some of you may be the boss in your work. And this has implications for you of, hey, your employees, those who work under you, you are to treat them justly and fairly. And what's to motivate your just and fair treatment of your employees? The fact that, again, you have a master in heaven, and you will have to answer and give account to him regarding how you have exercised your authority over uh, the people that he has brought to work for you. And as I, as I mentioned earlier, the Bible uses this imagery of slave and master and that, uh, that, that this relationship uh, is not inherently evil. And sometimes we can, we can immediately go there. This is, this is wrong. This is evil. But, but turn with me over just a couple books to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6. First Timothy 6, starting in verse 1. Paul says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And what this is saying here, in the same way that the husband and wife relationship, in the same way that marriage is a picture of the gospel of Christ and the church. Uh, and uh, along those same lines, the, the slave-master relationship is an opportunity for us to display the gospel, to display the glory of God uh, in our modern day of employee and employer relationship. That's how you can display the gospel. And, and we understand that because of that, so what? He says, hey, honor and obey your masters so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. The implication is if you, if you don't honor and if you don't obey and you're identifying yourself as a Christian, what is communicated to your boss, to your master? What's communicated? I don't need to follow authority. And so it's really just an argument from lesser to greater. So as Christians, we say, hey, we are following a master who is in heaven. Yes, we can't see him but I trust that he's there and I'm living my life accordingly. 
But then in our, in our workplaces, if we don't follow our, our boss and earthly authority that we can see, and we can, yeah, we can speak to face-to-face, and we don't obey them, what are we communicating? That's the lesser. What are we communicating about the greater? That we also don't follow our heavenly master. Uh, th- those are the, the implications of, of your walk in your occupation, in your workplace. Your work ethic will, will communicate so much to your co-workers and to your boss. And, and the way, not just your work ethic, but how do you conduct yourself? What's your attitude at work? How do you speak of others? There, there's so much here. Uh, but those who are employees, you are called to obey your employers and demonstrate the truthfulness of the gospel uh, and in the way uh, that, that you relate to your boss and to your co-workers. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you, truly acknowledging you as our Lord, as our Master. Lord, we are your servants. We are your slaves. You are calling us to to dedicate our lives first and foremost to you. I pray that we would, uh, in response to your Lordship, that we would obey our our earthly masters, that we would obey every authority that has been placed over us. And that we would do that, not because they deserve it, not because they are so great, but, Lord, that we would obey in fear of you, out of worship and reverence for your holiness and the authorities that you have placed in our life. May we submit to them in everything. We also ask that you would help us to to work with all of our soul, that we would work wholeheartedly for our earthly masters, but that we would keep our eyes firmly upon you as the one who will reward us in the future with an inheritance that cannot be touched now, that cannot be tainted, destroyed, or stolen. Lord, we thank you what hope that brings us that we have an an inheritance that is safe with you in heaven. I pray that you would also help us to see ourselves first and foremost as your slaves, as your servants that you will be our judge, that there will be no partiality, that if we do wrong, we will be paid back for that wrong, and if we do right, we will be rewarded. Lord, help that reality, that truth, to sink into our lives and to impact our hearts. And if we are among those who have authority, who have uh, others that we exercise authority over, Lord, may we do that not as the Gentiles do, lording it over them, but with compassion, with grace, with mercy. May we extend uh, justice and fairness to them. And may we be motivated by your lordship over us. May we always have you in our minds, in our hearts, and may we serve you each and every day, whatever we do and anything that we do. May we give you all the glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.